in your mind that this is just a normal thing to go in the name of Jesus. So thank you, Stephen. We've been praying for you and excited to be able to do that. So we're, um, we're going to do a little bit of a, we've, we're kind of in between series here, and I wanted to look at this idea of legacy this, this morning, and we're going to be looking at Hebrews 11. So if you have your Bible, you can pick that up. Um, I think it's on page 866, or you can, I think it'll be coming up on the screen as well. But let me read this for us as we look at the story of some faith described here in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through, starting with 8 through 12. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Let me pray for us. Lord, even as we see a little bit of that video and we talk to Stephen and others who are getting a glimpse of your work, it reminds us you're big. It reminds us you're far bigger than the things that don't seem to be happening. Even right now, some of us sit here in that, just that dark, dark soul point, Lord, where we don't know exactly if you're working or if you're even with us. And we thank you for reminders that you are moving, you are working, even when we don't always feel it or see it, that your plan is in effect and you are using your people through the power of your spirit So would you revive some of our hearts here? We thank you for the church in Africa, that we have much to learn, materially lacking much, but spiritually outpacing the rest of the world in terms of the the power of God moving. And Lord, we desire that kind of power in our own midst. Forgive us that our faith has become so small. Our faith has become so based on uh, material creature comforts. And would you bring us to a point where we're needy of you and we want to be led by you? So let your word speak to us however you need to today. We pray for churches all around our city. Thank you that this work is so much bigger than one little church, but churches all around the city that love Jesus and love people who are preaching right now. We pray for their favor, God, that they would do well and you would become famous in this city. So guide us in this time, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, I had the pl- uh, pleasure and privilege this past week of being in Louisville, Kentucky at, a, at one of our, um, we're part of this network called Sojourn, and we had our uh, annual conference, a national conference this past week, and I was able to go with, together with some of our staff, Larry and uh, Van Kim, and, and they lived, they were in the same room, and it's okay because they're married. Um, so it was, it was a really good time together, great time, and um, I don't know Louisville well, but I was on the rental car, so I'm driving around, and I very much uh, was dependent on Larry all week because he had his phone, trusty phone, with his GPS system, and he was guiding us around. And I realized, because um, there was one time when he wasn't in the car, and he had been with us, and one of the other um, persons mentioned me, man, you really depend on Larry a lot, huh? You have no clue where you're going. I'm like, I got absolutely no clue here. I have no idea. And, and what I realized was, Larry, since he's my navigator, and I'm driving, and I'm going wherever he says to go, he says, well, well turn left here. I'm like, <laughs> you know, cut in front of that car over there, okay? <laughs> You know, I, I totally put my trust in him. I have no idea where we're going. If Larry suddenly, like, got, like, kind of insane and said, I want a donut right now, go straight, I would be going where he's going because he's in control. 
I'm, I'm trusting him. And, and what I realized is I wouldn't do that with everyone, but I know Larry. I have learned to trust him. I have learned that when he says, go through that light, even though it doesn't seem like you're going to the right place, I say, okay, well, Larry, I trust you. I know your character. Let's do it. Um, and this story that we see here, it reminds me a little bit, but there was no Larry here, but it reminds me a little bit. This, this faith we see in, in these characters, Abram and Sarah, Sarah, and they would come to be Abraham and Sarah, as we read here, um, that they're really taking steps and following God in spite of what they could see, but maybe more importantly, what they could not see with their eyes. That God was using this whole journey to bring about some different promises in their life. But I think just as significant, God was using this journey with Abraham and Sarah to cultivate their faith, to grow their trust in his character. Because they needed to trust God's character. Just like I would trust Larry if he's telling me to do something, he's telling me to turn. It's because I know him and I know he's a good guy and he's, he's out for my good. In the same way, Abraham and Sarah needed to learn God's character to trust him because he has called them to do some very uncomfortable things. What he has called them to do will put them in very precarious situations. Because, and if you, I, I would encourage you to read on your own. Genesis 12, you see the description of God calling them out of their own land to go to this new land. So they left comfortable, stable lives that we would assume to live as nomads. Verse 9 that we see here in Hebrews 11, it talks about that they went to foreign lands and they lived in tents. And for some of you really who love the rough it, that sounds, oh, that'd be great. I would love it if God called me to live in a tent. No, you wouldn't because this is a wilderness kind of journey. They're nomads. They're foreigners. It's an unstable existence as a foreigner. And um, just from me, coming from an immigrant family, when, when, when I say foreigner, I understand from looking at my parents, the struggle of coming to a country, it's not just like taking a vacation somewhere. You've planted yourself in a place where, especially when my folks were here, no one knew their language. They didn't know the language here, and they're trying to make their way through. And it's a struggle. Even to know basic things, it is very, and you, you're, you're, for so American culture, we're so big about, and some of you young folks know this, find what you're passionate about. And go find a job that really makes you feel thrilled and fulfilled as a person. How did God wire you and make you? Go find a job to do that. For the immigrant culture, there is none of that. It's like find a job. Find a way that you'll make some money, that you'll be able to build some stability. All this talk about happiness, that's like a privileged kind of language. For the immigrant, because it's, it's all about survival. Because even as we look at this idea with Abraham and Sarah here, there's, there's one story that illustrates this. Abraham and Sarah, right after God gave them a call in Genesis 12, read it. It's fascinating. Abraham tells his wife, Sarah, and she's described as, like, in biblical terms, hot. They didn't use that word, but she's described as hot. And, and basically, it's, yo, babe, you are just, like, so fine looking. So we're about to go in Egypt, and they don't know, who, they don't know God. They don't know us. So, yeah, they're going to, like, kill me to get with you. So pretend to be my sister. And here's the thing, and this week, actually, one of the, one of the professors spoke about this, because I've always seen that. I'm like, man, Abraham was such a slouch. What a jerk. What a lazy bum. So afraid of people that he makes his beloved wife pretend to be his sister. What a sleazebag. The thing this professor was saying, well, you know, that's, again, that's looking with privileged Western eyes, because none of you women would want your husband to do that. You're like, you better not ever do that. You know, I'm pretending to be a... Yeah. But for Abraham, the choice is you lose that reputation and some, or you die. 
That, it's as simple as that. So it's not as clear-cut as you and I kind of morally put on there and say, what's wrong with this guy? It's a choice. Yeah, he goes through some of the shame of telling people that his wife is his sister, or he dies, and he has everything stolen from him, which would be normal. Because for the foreigner, to go into a foreign land was basically inserting yourself into a very dangerous situation. That's the big point here, and that's why it's a safety issue. That's why throughout the scriptures, and I, my hope is to go through some of this in the future, we look at the heart of God. You, God uses certain terms over and over when he gives laws to his people about mercy and compassion and justice. He talks about, like, the widow, the orphan, but he also uses this term, the foreigner. And he tells to Israel, just like you remember when you were in Egypt as foreigners, what, what he's saying is to be a foreigner, especially in this time in history, was an extremely dangerous thing. Safety was not assumed. You had money, it's not assumed you would keep it because you had no rights as a foreigner. It's not like you get jacked and then the police are going to come by. Oh, 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 he's a foreigner. Okay, well, no one's got to worry about this then. Does it make sense? So this idea of foreigner, it, it, it's, 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 it's fearful for Abraham and Sarah. But they trusted God. They really had to learn to trust him in their faith. And, and there's a lot of fear involved. We see this throughout the story. But particularly in this one promise God gives them that they will, all nations will be blessed through them. And that's assumed there's going to be uh, a son coming from Abraham and Sarah. They just didn't trust him with this. And we have the verses up here from Genesis 15. And we looked at this a little earlier in the year, so I don't want to go into too much. But let me read from verse 2. In the midst of his doubt, Abram said, Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. You need to understand when Abram got the original call from God, he was 75 years old. Now, I don't know too many. I I know some virile 75-year-old men. I don't know that many virile 75-year-old men. His wife was probably about 10 years or maybe more younger than him. So she's like around 65, maybe a little bit younger. Again, I mean, I, I, I know medical mysteries. I have not seen too much of that. So uh, God's given them the promise that children will be coming, but they're not seeing it. And verse 5, and he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And God, and if you remember the story, God gives him this incredible image and fire pots and like Gerald Tolkien, kind of just amazing things. And you would think after an experience like this, after this dream sequence, that Abraham and Sarah would never have another doubt about what God tells them, that they would have gotten it, but they still struggle trusting God. Does this make any of you feel good when you struggle trusting God? When I hear Abraham that did it, I feel really good because my sinful flesh, when other people fail, I kind of feel better about myself. That's evil, isn't it? That's horrible. But chapter 6. 16. They continued to struggle. Verse 1. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abraham, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abraham had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abraham's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abraham, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. So we, what we see here is God, God has given these promises again now. And, and you got it. Some of us, we live in a very instantaneous thing. Like, God gives me a promise. Okay, well, if I wait a little, maybe like next week, God, what are you thinking? You know, should I put down your answer for about six months? Can I put it down on my Google calendar? And, and you're going to provide? 
11 years. 11 years. God has promised children. It's still 11 years. And, and I imagine, again, I've got kind of a weird mind. So I'm imagining Sarai, who's just listening to Abram, like, continue. Yeah, babe, you know, God told us this is happening, so we should keep trying to have these children because God's promised. So what you say? And, I, and Sarah's like, you sure you heard from God? Because I am old, and this is not very fun right now. I don't know. what You sure you heard from God that we were supposed to have children? And she finally gets to a breaking point here, 11 years, and says, okay, come on, hold up, dude. I've got this maidservant. Maybe God's saying we'll do it. This, this is how it happened. I mean, it'll still be your kid, right? Because something must be wrong. I mean, things are not happening. And I'm sure... Abraham and Sarah, they're just struggling with whether they even heard God correctly. Have any of you ever been there? You said, to, oh, I feel God told me this. And like a month later, oh, man, am I going, I don't know if God really said that. Or maybe, uh, maybe they had done something to disqualify themselves from God's promise. Any of you ever been there? Like you feel God's definitely given you, but you have just jacked up the situation through your disobedience or through your lack of faith. So, They try to manipulate the situation by taking control. They say, God has given a promise. Maybe we need to do this. I mean, I don't feel right about this, but, you know, we got to do something to help God's promise here. And and those of you who are like me who know that whenever you try to manipulate God, it never turns out well. It never turns out. And God can use it all, but it's a lot of pain involved. But the thing is, even in their distrust, we learned that God was indeed faithful to his promise. And after 25 years, 25 years, isn't that insane? 25 years, when Abraham was about 100 and his wife is a spry, maybe 90, God delivered them a son out of their own bodies. So Abraham and Sarah, they learned to trust God. But check out what follows in Hebrews after it talks about Abraham and Sarah, verse 13 from uh, Hebrews 11. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Did you guys read that carefully here? Because this is so counter to what our society preaches that this should make you take a double take reading it. What it's saying is that Abraham and Sarah and so many like them before them in the scriptures never saw the full fulfillment of God for what they were living their lives for. That these pillars of faith who had been given these words from God and said, do this and this will result, they never got to see the full result of what God had promised their obedience was for. God said, do all this, and this will come about. But they, their lives ended before they saw it. Think about Abraham and Sarah. God said, all the nations will be blessed through you, and they got one little boy. Seriously? They don't know. I mean, this is not the Hollywood ending that often we like to attach to the scriptures, that as long as you beep, plug in obedience in level A, boop, out B comes God's blessing in level B. You know, it, it's like Hollywood, and everything turns out good in the end, and everything exactly this magical kind of thing. In many ways, their everyday actions and their choices in following God were not for their immediate gratification, but they were making an investment into a deeper, longer-term legacy that would go beyond their mortal cases of flesh. They were re- really investing in something much longer term. And, and 
I guess one of the reasons why I was thinking about this today for us as even for myself, I, I believe, and there's a lot of challenges to faith, but I believe this is like one of those really, really top challenges to growing more like Christ. Living like our actions and our beliefs, our, our choices today are investing in the future. I believe one of the biggest challenges that most of us face in our faith journey is living like what we do today is investing in something in the future. Because so many of us, our faith gets sidetracked because we make decisions today not thinking about the future. We make choices today, whether it's something deep within our soul, a compulsion, or maybe a fear that we have, maybe certain shame or guilt that we're trying to erase, or maybe, again, whatever it might be, we make decisions on the now, not thinking about how it's going to impact the future. And like Abraham and Sarah, we might not see the full visible fruit of obeying God right now. And that's going to scare some of you, right? Because you're used to, if I do this, this will result. But like Abraham and Sarah, um, you might not even see within your lifetime the full fruit of your obedience. And I'm not saying that there's not a particular joy just in obeying God. I believe there is. I believe that even if you just obey God in this life and you journey with him, even if there's no results, I believe there's a certain joy found there. But the truth is that much of how God might be calling you to live and to trust and obey him, it might not reveal itself right away, at least to your knowledge. And, and so many of us live this way, right? Because we don't feel it today, it must somehow not be true. <sighs> Any of you ever there? It's just me. Man, I don't feel like God's being faithful, or I don't feel like this is what I should be doing. You sure, God, keep pastoring that church even if no one's coming? Really, God? It doesn't feel like it. I, I, that's how I operate. But guys, the Christian journey, it's about investing into a legacy, believing that something greater is to come that's worth our present sacrifice, both for yourself, but also for others. That this Christian journey of God calling you to sacrifice for the sake of something down the line, it's worth it. Because God is bringing something. But you might not see it. <laughs> that's not very compelling for some of us, right? Because we want our, like, plug my lotto ticket so I can get my... So, it doesn't always happen that way. And, and you all need to know here, especially if, if you're part of this church, you need to know this, this church building, it's not like the village we, we started in 2008 and said, hey, let's build a church building that looks really vintage because that's cool. That, I mean, this, this building has been around since like the late 1800s, and it was started by a church called Hamden Baptist Church. And you need to know these things because you need to know the history that they made choices from the very beginning. They made choices that said, you know, we're going to take this thing called the Bible and we're actually going to believe it's true and we're going to order our lives to it and, and, and teach other people about this. We're going to teach people that being a Christian is not just about doing these nice social events and doing some works of mercy, which is all great, but it's also talking about the spiritual condition and, and calling in broken and wrecked people into healing. They believe those things, and, and the thing is, a lot of you guys sitting here today, you are some of the fruit of their ministry. When they, this used to not, we used to not have these uh, balconies here. They had to build that because they got so full in this place, people like waiting out the doors to come here to worship. 
It was crazy. Some, some dude, some smart guy, probably like one of our smart guys said, hey, well, let's just build some balconies. So they, they built these balconies, and they put in seating in there and everything because it was just jam-packed in this place. All that work that they did, all the prayers that they did, all, all the ministry in this neighborhood, they had no clue that there would be people sitting here of all different cultures, <laughs> of many varied ethnicities, of many different classes, sitting in one room worshiping the living Jesus together. They had no clue about that. You are their legacy. But check this. There's probably like 10 of them that would ever get to see it with their own eyes of flesh. That's the truth. I mean, by the time we came here, there were about 10, 15 people. There have been saints from like 1870 who've been praying over this place and investing into it, and you are their legacy, but they never got to see it with their own eyes. But they faithfully served and believed the gospel. Because the truth is, in, in a similar way, you rarely see the full effect of your investment in another person until a good time has passed. That's just the way discipleship works. And I, I know we'd love to believe you just plug people into a discipleship program and teach them this course for about six weeks, maybe eight if they're really hardcore Christians, and then boop, out comes a mature, fully, fully baked Christian. I, I, I would love that. I mean, that, that would just make life so easy. That's not the way it works. That's just not the way it works. It, it's like, it's like um, when, when you have a, a newborn mom and you've got a, a baby and th this amazing thing about little babies, they got to eat, right? It's crazy. They need to eat, and they need to get changed in their diaper, and they can't do it themselves. It's, it's really inefficient, right? But you got these little, little creatures called babies, and it is just, and hopefully there are some men that help with it, but honestly, for a mom, has to get up like every two to three hours, like continually to feed this kid. Like continually. It never stops. The kids, you might be able to give timeouts. You, mom never gets a timeout. It's just continual cycle. Time to feed the baby. Oh, I just fell asleep. Boing, time to feed the baby. And this kid is better than any alarm clock. Ah! Continually. And, and, and there are just certain points I'm imagining when, when a parent and a mom would cry out, when will this ever end? I miss sleep. I forgot what sleep is. I'm, I'm, I'm like the walking dead. It's, this is insane. When will this ever stop? It's the knowledge that if that were all life is about, yeah, just <laughs> give up right there. But it's with the hope that that's not a fully eternal thing. God, praise God, right? It's a temporary thing. It's for a few months. And, and that's the hope that keeps a parent going, realizing, yeah, I've got some sacrifice to make. I've got some investment to make. But it's with the hope that this is helping this little person become a bigger person, more fully developed involves sacrifice. In the same way, when you invest in someone today, if you're thinking spiritually, if you're investing in someone, I'm, I'm going to say this, your investment today will rarely bring forth fruit tomorrow. Your investment today, as hard as you're doing it, as much as you're praying, as faithful as you are, it will not always bring forth fruit tomorrow. And for some of you, I say that to try to, not to discourage you, but actually try to encourage you, because you are faithfully trying to love people. You've got family members you've been praying for for a long time that don't know Jesus, and they just think you're a mental midget because you believe in this body. You're like, seriously? You believe this stuff? They think you're part of a cult. You know, many people think we're a cult. They think you're part of a cult. 
Or you've got people, and you, or maybe you've been reaching out in the neighborhood, and you've just been loving people, and they, and every week, they're, oh, I'll be there. Oh, yeah, I'll be, oh, yeah, that's great. And it doesn't happen, and you get discouraged, thinking, man, is it ever going to change? And you need to know the biblical principles that rarely is our faithful obedience always lead to immediate fruit right after. I'm not saying nothing's happening. Very much something's happening. You just might not be seeing it. Amen? And we need to know these things. Otherwise, you'll go insane. So what does this mean for us practically? Because, again, our world is all about the instantaneous. Our world's all about the spectacular. So even when we think about transformation, it's all about going out, going out and do something crazy for God. So it's like Stephen Blas up here and talking about Africa and talking about picking up. And, you know, I was going through this, but then I went to Africa for four months and God is working. And some of you are like, yes, that's like faithful Christianity. I need to do that. I need to go do something like, I need to just go to the, I need to really, I need to be sold out. Sign me up, Pastor. Some of you, that's your mentality. And I, and I say this, conferences, Christian conferences, they would just go out of business without this call to motivate folks for like crazy living. Because no one wants to go to a conference that says, just live your life every day faithfully to God. No one goes to that. Everyone wants to, you will change your life. And every conference says, only this generation can do it. Every conference says that. We are the generation. No, every conference says that. <laughs> and I'm not going to get invited to any more conferences because I say stuff like this. And, and hear me correctly. I totally affirm that the God that we worship in the scriptures as we study it is one worthy of a radical response. Amen? Totally believe that. You cannot read the scriptures and just get some nice moral teaching. There is a radical response. But maybe... This is, again, this might be mind blowing. Maybe the most radical thing that you can do is to genuinely ask yourself the question if I believe God is real, how would that affect what I do today? Maybe more than going halfway around the world or adopting like 30 kids. I mean, if God leads you there, praise God, do it. Don't let me hold you back. But maybe the most radical thing some of us can do is just stop right now and say, today, God, if I believe you are real, if I believe that what I read about you in here is actually true, what would that mean for how I study today? What would that mean for how I manage my money today? What would that mean for how I uh, act with other people? To, how would that act uh, w- with my computer? Whatever it means. Maybe the most radical thing we can do is say, if God is real, how would that make things different in my life right here in Baltimore, day after day, when it doesn't always feel so exciting. When it feels kind of mundane. When it just feels normal. When it feels like the people I see every day around me. Because I'm going to suggest the real test of our faith is found in the ordinary. I mean, everyone can get hyped for a conference. Everyone can get hyped for a one-week mission trip. I mean, even the most pagan of people, you know you're going for one week. Oh, yeah, I love Jesus with all my heart. The real test of faith is day to day when people are not even looking at you and you're just living. What does your relationship with God look like there in your day-to-day decisions? Like how you use your money, for example. You know, if I believe God were real and I believe I'm investing in this long-term future, would I be spending my money the way I am? And this is not just speaking to folks. Some of you are thinking of folks in this room right, with a lot of money. Like, give it to them. Yeah. Selfish people. You give it to them. No, no. This is all of us, whether you have a lot or whether you feel like you have a little. Because if you have a little, perhaps some of the questions you need to ask yourself is, if I believe God is real, would I, 
maybe some of the decisions I'm making that are causing me not to have too much money. Maybe I need to question it. Because maybe I'm throwing it away in poor ways on others. Maybe some of you who do have a good amount of financial stability, maybe you're really good at like pouring it into savings. And I, I'm, I'm a big, okay, I like Dame Ramsey. Okay, I'm good about Dame Ramsey. I believe saving is good. You know, how many months he says, like 30 months or whatever. I'm, I'm, I'm all about that. But I don't know. I think sometimes God has blessed us, blessed us with things so that we can be a blessing to other people. I mean, I know that's crazy, right? But I, I somehow believe God has given us a lot. So even when you look at the book of Acts, we're not going to turn there, but in the book of Acts, there, there's a portion of it says that everyone who had need, everyone who was in need came and no one lacked. Pretty much something like that, right? What that seems to be saying to me is not that the church started some special program, but the church had people who had much, and maybe those who didn't have as much, and everyone just started to look at each other as one family. So they said, you know what? I have got way more than I'm ever going to need. Oh, I can help you out a little bit more. That's why, I'm, and I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not uh, antagonistic toward government programs. I think they're very necessary. But the true generosity come, will come from within a Christian community who starts to believe, I supposed to, I'm supposed to take care of the people in my community. I'm, God has blessed me and put me in this church so that I could have other people that I could be kind and generous to. Amen? If, if we believe God were real, how would that affect today, even in terms of our work, for those of you who work, or if you're a student? And I'm just going to say this, and I can say it because I'm up here and no one's going to take away my mic. Some of us just need to repent because you worship your achievement. And, and when I say that, I'm preaching to myself first because I worship achievement. I believe if I achieve, I will finally be happy. That insecure little boy will be gone and I'll finally be someone. I totally buy into that. I need to repent of it. And I think some of us here need to as well because you think if I just achieve, if I just work hard enough, if I just give myself enough to my school or to my work, that somehow I'll, I'll be a better person or I'll finally get rid of my shame or my guilt. But I'm going to suggest that if you're so busy, quote-unquote, succeeding, that you have no time to invest in other people, something's wrong there. If you're so busy at making your way that you have no time for other people, if your calendar is just so full that you got no time to be interrupted, you need to evaluate your schedule. Because we all have enough time for what we think is important. That's just truth. Because Jesus, I don't think he died on a cross to give you a better chance at making Dean's List or for you to become employee of the month. I, I really think it was beyond that. You know, and, and there's so many other examples, obviously. We're not, I don't want to belabor it, but, I can, and again, I'm talking to myself first here. I am just struck with how many of the things that we invest in in our lives that are so temporary. How many of the things that we spend so much energy and so much time and so much planning that are so temporal, that are so temporary? And I heard this, um, I think it was at this conference, actually, they, just a question. When's the last time you talked about your great-grandfather? When's the last time you were sitting in conversation with someone and say, over coffee, and like, man, did I ever tell you about my great-grandfather? Man, that man was just amazing. You should have seen what he did with, like, the railroads and, you know, whatever they did back there. That's all I think about, railroads. And, I mean, he was amazing. We don't do that. I don't even know my great-grandfather's name. Based on this idea, we all get forgotten. We all get forgotten. There's a very few that get remembered because they maybe they made something, 
But honestly, no one knows them in person. They just kind of remember maybe something that they made. And this is not to depress you. This is not one of those sermons where I'm trying to depress you and say, oh, man, why am I even doing this? Right? I'm going to go open a hot dog stand or something. Uh, I'm trying to. <laughs> you see my inner heart desire, right? Open a hot dog stand. <laughs> this is not to depress you. I'm trying to free you. I'm trying to give you a message because you have bought into the lie your whole life. If I succeed, if I achieve this, if I get this, if I get this, if I, got, if I own this, I get, if I find her, if I, if I get these things, then I'll finally be satisfied. The thing is, it will never bring you freedom. It'll just put on more and more burden upon your shoulders because it's never enough. True freedom is found when you realize who you were created for and whose image you were made for the sake of honoring him and loving other people. That's where freedom comes in. Because if we believe life is bigger than each one of us, the appropriate response is is for us to ask, how then am I going to invest my life into others for the sake of an eternal perspective? And, And for us here at the village, this is critical for us to get down because, again, this is not going to be an overnight kind of transformation thing especially if we're trying to reach our city, especially if we're trying to be this multicultural community, transformation will not happen overnight. I, I equate it to cooking rice. And, and you know, when I think about rice, I, I've heard there's things called like uh, Uncle Ben's or like minute rice, and then you just pop it in and do the machine microwave thing, and then it just comes out and you got rice. Yo, sorry, son, that ain't rice. You know, that, that's not rice because I'm, I'm, I'm Korean. Rice is this, like, big old machine in our house that you, you put the thing in, you put the water, and you do all these buttons, fancy buttons, and you just let it sit for, like, an hour. It's like, it's like going over and just, like, percolating and stuff. And this thing, it takes a long while to cook if you want, like, this real rice. In the same way, we can't expect that we just plug people into these simple little programs or just come out to this event and, you know, you'll be transformed. Oh, yeah, come out to a men's breakfast and after having a a holy bagel, somehow your life will be different. It takes people investing into your life and you investing in other people's life for the long haul. I'm talking like years. Getting to know them, learning to love them, weeping with them, Weeping with their sorrow, laughing with their joy, getting to know their pains that you can't just know from kind of casually meeting one another for a few minutes on a Sunday. And what success looks like for us then, if we're thinking long term, because I'm just pulling the veil back. When people look at a new church, they ask, how are you doing right now? And that's success. How many people do you got? How many people got? How, many money you got? how much money you got coming in? And those are normal. But for me, the way I evaluate success at our church is I look at the playground. I look at a playground. I see kids walking under. How are things in this neighborhood going to look different in 15 years? That's what success looks like for me. I don't give a rip if we just do some nice programs here and to keep us looking fat and happy as a nice, cool Christian church in 2014. That really don't matter that much to me. How are the things we're investing in now going to make a difference in this neighborhood? The kids here, one of my hopes genuinely as I've been praying is that some of our kids, some of our teenagers, they're going to do some things for God. Their hearts are going to be so captured that they're just going to blow up. They're just going to do amazing things for God that... One day, I hope that I can like, be a little footnote in their story. That's my hope. That some of the kids we look at now, that we're like, oh, man, they don't got much chance. They're from this neighborhood, and, man, things don't go well. Man, my hope is that they're going to do amazing things for God because they learned the gospel here. 
because moms and dads learn the gospel here and pass it on to kids and starts to get into the neighborhood. That's success. It's about leaving a legacy. You know, because I think about my own life. I mean, you guys, if you're, especially if you're new, you just see the church and you see what we're doing, and it's pretty cool. But, man, I, I've lived a pretty long life at this point where many people invested in me. And I've told some stories like this where I was that kid in youth group, really rebellious, kind of like bad attitude. Not that you guys could tell, right? I'm, I seem really kind and gentle. But I was, I was not that. I always liked that. Um, you know, I was the guy that when my, my youth pastor wanted to be to come over, I basically mouthed bleep you to him. I was that guy. <laughs> and we had that long talk. But after that, he said, hey, you come to church every Sunday, and I'm going to meet up with you. I'd like to meet up with you every Sunday. He did that. Little ninth grade kid. I, I, I was that guy in college, freshman year. I didn't want to do the Jesus thing because they all look like dorks, right? Let's just be honest. Um, I had someone on campus, an older grad student. He would come by my room every week, knock, knock, knock. Hey, Dan, time to go out evangelizing. And I'd be hiding in my room. I didn't even have the guts to tell him I didn't want to do it. I just hid. It's horrible, right? Week after week, ignoring him. But he was faithful and continued to invest in me. I had a youth leader when I was in high school, and I was a really shy, insecure kid, like ultra shy, like petrified to be in front of people, kind of shy, extremely, totally insecure, hated myself. And I had this youth leader who would come to our school and just hang out with students and love them, invest in them, lift weights with us, ask us how we're doing. And I, I see how all those investments into my life for years you guys are the legacy for them. You guys are some of their fruit. Your transformed life here in Baltimore 2014, you are some of the fruit of some of those people who invested selflessly into my life back then and trained me and patiently walked with me. And the thing is here, to you, you have no clue who they are. And they have probably no clue who you are, but you're their legacy. You're a result of their faithfulness. And guys, again, this is a real countercultural message. And I'm not even saying countercultural to the world, but to the church. Because so much of what we hear in the church today is how God can make all your dreams come true. That God is like a holy Aladdin, and you just go rub his belly, and it looks like prayer. But just rub his belly, and then God will give you everything that you've always been miserable about. He'll make it okay. He's the magic genie. And he'll bring you great prosperity, and, and he'll, he'll awaken the true inner you that just needs to be tickled and woken up a little bit. So that you can really be all you were meant to be. And that's all fine. And, and I also believe that God will do far greater things in you and through you than you could have ever dreamed possible. And that you will truly leave an unbelievable legacy of faith. But here's the thing. The way that it reveals in your own life may never look that spectacular. Sometimes, God's working in your life might look like a tragic failure. Check out the end of Hebrews 11 after all of these stories of faith throughout from verse 35. This is describing people of faith. Verse 35, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, 
of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. No church is putting that on a bumper sticker. Come join our church and you can be sawn in half. Come join our church and our discipleship program will let you lose your head. These are dear saints who, in their suffering and martyrdom, have seemed to lose everything that the world says is valuable, including life. But the reality is that they have left a legacy that includes you and I if you're a Christian. These dear saints who lost their life, they don't even have names here. (laughs) Abraham got a name. Sarah got a name. Noah got a name. These are just beheaded, sawn in half. They don't even got names. But God has considered them worthy. Those who followed in faith, even though this world has not given them anything, and their faithfulness, they've been included in this hall of faith, and now you and I sit here as part of their legacy. As it's been passed on from generation to generation, And I love the chapter that follows in in, in chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and that includes all those who are martyred and lost everything, there it is, giant cloud, cheering us on. Since you are so surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Ultimately, we see that this countercultural call to leave a legacy, it's not just given to us as a good thing to do, but it was actually lived out by the Lord Jesus himself. This was not just instructive, this was an example. And that the reason we can live this kind of life investing in others is because Jesus did so in us through the cross and rising from the dead in the resurrection. And he shows and he models for us that there's never any waste when we give to others for the sake of the kingdom. That God is using it all and that we would leave a great legacy of faith because some of you, you feel like your life has been a failure because of mistakes you've made, because of ways you've been disobedient, because of ways you have lied, because of ways that you've heard the call to be faithful and pure and chaste and hardworking, and you haven't done it. And you feel like in in the big bus of God moving along, like you're kind of hanging out the window, and you're about to fall off. And we remember that you also are Jesus's legacy. That I guarantee you when he was being hung on that cross, bleeding out, spear up his side, crown of thorns stuck into his head, beaten, flogged, mocked, laughed at, he looked like the most pitiful figure in history. King of kings! Lord of lords! Criminal. It very much looked like a failure. It very much looked like what he invested in was a total joke. But he and his father knew that there was always a plan. (laughs) That that was part of the plan. But that it was leading to a much bigger legacy. That he would rise from the grave, defeat sin and death. Take away the guilt and the shame that you feel right now. And some of you need to know this right now. The guilt and the shame and the fear that you experience... You're trying to take it away by being more successful, by trying to be better. Jesus takes that on the cross. Amen? 
So bring it to him. Bring it to him. And praise him. And worship him. And let him love you. And let him remind you that you are also his legacy. And now if he's poured into you, he wants you to leave a legacy for others. It might never impress anyone. It might just be day-to-day faithfulness. It might mean a dad in here just reading the Bible to your kid every day. No one's ever going to give you a trophy for that. But that's faithfulness. Coming early and making coffee for church. No one will ever give you a plaque for that. That's faithfulness. Fixing the sound. Playing an instrument. No one's ever going to applaud you for these things. Going out, working with the poor, helping out with sukkah. No one's ever going to notice you for these things. But those are the kind of investments that God uses for bigger kingdom purposes. Amen? Bow your head with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we confess.